This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 24th of April 2021 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, Develt's Stephanie Bolzan will be here to tell us why we should be following Germany's federal election. Plus, Number 10 Downing Street's former Director of Communications, Lance Price, will be taking us through the weighty Saturday papers. And then it's time for Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, to explain some of the week's quirkier news stories. Affronted fans of England's football powerhouses, and Tottenham Hotspur could swap their replica shirts at Grimsby's club shop for a Grimsby Town equivalent, the besmirched Premier League garments to be donated to local youth groups and overseas humanitarian projects. And finally, we'll hear from the director of London Library, which is celebrating its 180th anniversary. That's Philip Marshall. All that coming up on Monocle on Saturday. Do stay with us. In the early hours of this morning, there was trouble in East Jerusalem as Palestinians faced off with Israeli police in nightly Ramadan clashes that sparked rocket fire by militants in the Gaza Strip and protests in Palestinian towns across the occupied West Bank. The United States is deploying a P-8 Poseidon aircraft to assist in the search and rescue operation for a missing Indonesian Navy submarine lost in the Bali Sea, as hopes fade for the 53 crew, which are expected to have run out of oxygen early today. India's coronavirus infections rose by 346,786 overnight, the health ministry said today, setting a new world record for the third consecutive day as overwhelmed hospitals in the densely populated country begged for oxygen supplies. And in our weekend edition email bulletin, there are insights into Canadian shoe politics, Ethiopian surrealism, and we hear about the Irish inspiration of electronic music producer Kelly Lee Owens. To get your own copy, go to monocle.com forward slash minute. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now we're going to begin today's programme by unpacking an exciting week in German politics. The country will contest its federal elections in September and we have a much clearer idea now of who might succeed Angela Merkel as Chancellor. Well, I'm joined for more by Stephanie Bolzan, who's the uh, UK and Ireland correspondent for Die Welt. Good morning to you, Stephanie. Good morning. Uh, could we begin with looking at the two main candidates? So that's Armin Laschet of the CDU and Annalena Baerbach of the Greens. What can you tell us about them? We're told that uh, Laschet is pretty much uh, a personality-free zone. A lot of people are accusing him of having no charisma. Well, at least what you can say is that they are rather the opposite of each other. So you have, as, as a German voter, you have, um, if, if you want to vote one of these parties, you have a very stark contrast there. So... Uh, Armin Laschet, he is uh, currently the prime minister of Nordrhein-Westfalen. This is one of the most populated and economically most important regions in Germany with uh, cities like Düsseldorf, Cologne, uh, the Ruhr uh, area. Um, he is from, say, the centre 
right of the party. He has been liberal in the sense that um, he at some point was the minister for integration uh, already 10 years ago. And he was always very liberal in, um, I would say, progressive in um, such key questions like immigration, uh, asylum policy. Um, so he was very much criticized from the right. Now he's much more criticized from the left because um, this week when he uh, presented himself for the first time being the, as we say, Spitzenkandidat to um, uh, industrial associations, he was making the point that Germany needs to stay competitive, that Germany cannot um, only uh, respect questions of climate change and fight against climate change, that uh, industry still needs to play a role. And that, of course, is a stark contrast to what the Greens will want as, as their key policies. Mm. Now, uh, Annalena Baerbach, a former trampoline leaning champion um, and they they say queen of the talk shows tell us about her yeah she is i mean she's 40 years old she has two children um she was uh, when she was young um uh, uh, very sporty she um competed uh, in the german uh, on the national um, championships for trampolining and i think she won three times the bronze medal so she is, she is a very strong character in, in, in many senses. She has, uh, and that is something she mentioned also when she um, presented herself as the candidate for the Greens for the Chancellery, she um, admitted that, of course, she never has had any um, um, government uh, minister post. So that's something that, of course, people will say, OK, while you are very charismatic and uh, you are very consistent in your policies, you have never had really responsibility for a ministerial job. And that's something that she uh, admitted open, openly, of course, because she knows that this is very much a weak point. But she said, I'm standing here, I'm representing a change for Germany. And I think that's something that resonates a lot with the German public, because they had had, uh, still are having Angela Merkel for 16 years. Um, the successor coming from the party of Angela Merkel, Armin Laschet, is very much a continuation and a kind of dull, boring, same same old same. Mm. While uh, Annalena Baerbock is colourful, young, uh, and and a very different spirit, and I think a lot of um, Germans long for that. But what do you think is behind this rise of the Greens? I mean, they they seem to have captured the left of centre ground space. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, if you look at the history of the Greens, of course, they came in the 80s from the um, anti-nuclear movement. Um, they were the ones who were very militant in protests and street demonstrations. Um, and they always were a party that had two halves. So one half was the so-called fundi, the fundamentals, and the realos, the realities, uh, reality or real politic um, supporters. And then in 1998, um, the Greens entered the first time the federal um, coalition government with the SPD, with the then um, Chancellor Gerhard Schröder. And they were a very successful government and they had very, very good uh, ministers, cabinet ministers, like, for example, uh, the foreign minister Joschka Fischer. And I think a turning point, if I just uh, may make this um, his historical comment, was in 1999 in the Kosovo War, when Joschka Fischer pleaded to his party that they had to um, intervene in Kosovo, being a pacifist um, party, because if if you take responsibility in the government, 
you have to take responsibility and you can't stay behind if you see a genocide on your own continent. And that was a turning point for the Greens. And from then on, very much, I think, also in the psyche of the Germans, they were respecting the Greens as a party that takes responsibility and, um, yeah, you can you can rely on. Mm. So what do you think German voters care about? What will be the, the key factors influencing this election? Well, obviously, basically now uh, how you recover um, from the corona pandemic, but also very much the fight against climate change, and especially, obviously, with the young and younger voters. Um, but I think there is something ideological here that is already, you can feel it in this first week of... Um, knowing who is representing or who's running for the job in the CDU and who's running for the job in the Greens. So the Greens, their program will be very much a left of the centre economic program. They want things like a guaranteed uh, minimum uh, wage. Uh, they will want things that some people, the critics, critics will say this comes from a socialist-inspired um, ideology where basically the taxpayer pays and competitiveness plays no role in Germany anymore. Uh, while, of course, say more on the center ground right in the conservative part of Germany, they will say uh, we have paid enough now public money or taxpayers' money to recover from the pandemic. We now need to have competition again and um, strong responsibility and uh, ingenuity of, of, of the German economy and not something that, that the Greens want, which is basically continue um, uh, uh, public stimulus. Mm -hmm. uh, Stephanie, I know the election's five months away and an awful lot can happen in that time. If you had to call it right now, what would it be? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you can look at the polls and the CDU would still win. I mean, interestingly, the day after the uh, presentation um, of the candidates, so Annalena Baerbock, they had a perfect presentation. It was very smooth, very friendly, very positive, optimistic. Um, while the CDU uh, had a, a weeks of really ugly internal struggle, who would now be the candidate, whether Amin Laschet or Markus Söder, the Bavarian prime minister. And the day after, the, the Greens were six points ahead of the CDU. So if on, on Tuesday there had been a federal election, the Greens would be in the chancellery. This has turned around now again. The CDU is again leading with six points. But Interestingly, um, for the time being, there couldn't be a coalition between Black and Greens, so the CDU Greens, which is possibly the next coalition. They don't poll enough votes. So I don't know. I, I could imagine next time around we might have um, for the first time, I think it would be the first time, three parties in the chancellery in Berlin. And that's, uh, as you can imagine, three parties in, in um, being responsible for German politics that uh, is going to be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Stephanie, thank you very much indeed. And of course, we'll be following that story very closely uh, between now and September. Uh, Stephanie Bolzan from Die Welt. Now, still to come on today's programme, Lance Price reviews the day's newspapers, Andrew Muller's take on the week's news, and we speak to the director of the London Library. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. We'll be right back after this. Immerse yourself in the world of Monocle by visiting monocle.com. You can listen live to our radio station, Monocle 24, subscribe to any of our podcasts and listen back to a wealth of great programmes. Browse over 800 free Monocle films and slideshows or visit our online shop. It's stocked with books, clothing and design products to help you create a cosier home, sharpen your look and put a spring in your step. Oh, and you can take out that all-important Monocle subscription and browse our exciting digital editions too. 
Finally, check monocle.com every day for fresh news and opinions from our editors and bureau across the globe, courtesy of the Monocle Minute and the Monocle Weekend Editions. It's all right here at monocle.com. What are you waiting for? Listening to Monocle on Saturday, I'm Georgina Godwin. We're going to flick through some of the day's papers now with Lance Price, who's the former Director of Communications at Number 10 Downing Street. Uh, Lance, thanks so much for joining us today. All of the UK newspapers is one that, that you are better placed than most to, to comment on because it does emanate from communications and the heart of Number 10 Downing Street. Yes, this is the story uh, about Dominic Cummings, who was Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister's closest advisor for a long time, um, helped him win the Brexit referendum that took Britain out of the European Union, helped him win the general election that made uh, Boris Johnson Prime Minister, um, and then fell out with uh, with him um, uh, and is now um, uh, apparently an embittered man. But for reasons that are not immediately obvious, uh, Downing Street decided to blame uh, Dominic Cummings for recent leaks about um, integrity issues, shall we say, a number of them uh, involving uh, the Prime Minister. Um, and so what we have now all over the uh, UK papers, as you say, uh, is the response from Dominic Cummings, who in the first place denies being behind uh, leaking the various stories that have that have damaged um, Boris Johnson and his government, um, but also saying that he's got lots of WhatsApp messages and text messages saved on his phone and that he's willing to go before a parliamentary committee and basically reveal all. Now, on one level... Um, the government have got this story where they want it because it's a sort of a spat between different, you know, uh, factions within Downing Street or former factions within Downing Street rather than on the substance of the allegations against the prime minister. But um, they have really opened uh, a can of worms and they've they've uh, prompted Dominic Cummings uh, to come out fighting um, and it could end in a very, very messy um, uh, story for for the Prime Minister and for the government. I mean, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? This man who is deeply, deeply unpopular with most of the country, Dominic Cummings I'm talking about here, could end up being a hero by getting rid of Johnson. Yeah, well, yes, uh, it is. Um, and I think that um, uh, Downing Street are, are, are um, relying on the fact that Dominic Cummings is despised by so many people across the country and that therefore people will simply dismiss anything he says. Um, because um, if you remember, he was the guy who broke all the um, COVID-19 restrictions, drove his family up to the north of England, uh, claimed that he was going to a town that's now famous called Barnard Castle uh, just to test his eyesight. All of that uh, has totally discredited him as an individual. But the claims that he's making, if they're true, which are basically the, the really important ones, are that, are that the Prime Minister stepped in to try to stop an official leak inquiry within Downing Street because it might have implicated his girlfriend's best friend. And the other is that he benefited uh, quite extensively from um, donations that may have been illegal in order to renovate the flat in Downing Street. Now, those are two very, very serious allegations. Uh, previous prime ministers would have been sent reeling by these sorts of allegations. But Boris Johnson has this capacity, or so far, has had this capacity to shrug them off. Um, and as he said in response to, to Dominic Cummings' uh, comments, uh, you know, I, 
He said, I don't think anyone gives a monkeys about who's briefing against who. Well, that's because that's what he wants the story to be about, who's briefing against who, rather than the substance of the allegations. Yeah. Uh, just before we move on from this, what happens next? Yeah, but Cummings gives evidence to a parliamentary committee. Yes, he's, he's agreed to give evidence to a joint committee in Parliament um, uh, in a week or two's time. Uh, now, he's already shown a willingness to uh, be very outspoken on those committees when he appeared before one previously uh, and was very critical of the uh, Department of Health and the government's initial response to, to COVID. So that will be the most watched um, parliamentary committee for a very, very long time. Mm. Well, on to another discredited and deeply unpleasant person, um, Tommy Robinson, formerly known as Stephen Yaxley-Lennon. He's all over the New York Times. Why is that? Well, the New York Times has done a very, very in-depth look at uh, Tommy Robinson. Um, and the reason that this sort of caught my eye is that Tommy Robinson is, is a character who's on the far right of British politics, um, has been arrested, uh, been jailed four times, uh, banned from Facebook, banned from Twitter, um, and is generally considered to be a bit of a non-entity now in, 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 in the UK. But the, the New York Times, um, in the way that it does, has done a very, very thorough look at him, at his finances, at his backers. Uh, and what it shows is that um, Tommy Robinson was very popular with the, with the Trump um, campaign and, and with some of Trump's backers, uh, many of whom, as we know, are very wealthy, put a lot of money uh, into him. Uh, and now that Trump has gone and some of that money has dried up, Mr Robinson um, hasn't gone away and hit, hit, hit under a, a stone somewhere. He's now moved on to Russia um, uh, for two reasons. One is that there's money in Russia um, to support him and there are also bank accounts where he can hide quite a lot of money. I don't think people realise quite how much money Mr Robinson has managed to accumulate, but also that, he can, that the Russians are willing to back him. Uh, to destabilise British politics, Western politics, American politics. Um, and um, so while we think that the UK, quite rightly and sensibly and, and, and impressively, has sort of driven fringe characters like Tommy Robinson um, uh, out of the mainstream debate. Actually, they are still around on the international stage. They can always find a home and they are still dangerous. Yes, yeah. Uh, Lance, finally, you and I share a love of halloumi cheese, uh, but it seems that we may be unlucky quite soon because there's a shortage of goats to make the stuff. <laughs> yes, I mean, this is a sort of part political, part um, guest astronomical, if that's a word, story. Um, halloumi is lovely. Um, fried halloumi with capers, you know, tried if you haven't. Um, and it's produced in Cyprus. Um, now, Cyprus is a divided island between the Turkish north and the, and the Greek Cypriot south. Uh, it's been divided for decades. And there was a hope that halloumi, um, which is a great national tradition on both sides of the, of, of the border, would be um, a way of healing divisions. Um, and also um, drawing the country together um, uh, because the EU have finally agreed that they can um, sell, that it can be given what's called protected designation of origin status, a very, very EU sort of, you know, jargonistic thing. But what it means is that it can be sold throughout the EU as a, as a Cypriot product. Um, great, it means that the, 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 the Turkish Cypriots in the north can export something into the EU, except that the EU, um, in its uh, uh, typical fashion, some people might say, have put very strict rules uh, on what makes halloumi special. Um, and one requirement is that it has to contain 50% sheep and goat's milk. And the Turkish farmers are saying, well, we haven't got the sheep and the goats. We can't fulfil <laughs> this. So what was going to be this, you know, piece through cheese, 
doesn't appear to be working. Oh dear. Lance, I, I do hope that, that the supply doesn't run out. Um, thank you very much indeed uh, to the political commentator, Lance Price. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. Well, it's time now to take our usual sideways look at the past seven days. Here's Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller. We learned this week from the richly amusing implosion of the proposed European Super League that Grimsby Town FC currently ranked the worst professional football team in England at the foot of League Two may not be up to much at actual football but have a rare genius for PR. We'll be needing the only known song about Grimsby. Grimsby Town, pride of the eponymous nominatively determined Northern English conurbation, offered a shirt amnesty. Affronted fans of England's football powerhouses and Tottenham Hotspur could swap their replica shirts at Grimsby's club shop for a Grimsby Town equivalent, the besmirched Premier League garments to be donated to local youth groups and overseas humanitarian projects. We further learned upon scrutinising Grimsby's upcoming fixtures that we don't much care for their chances against Oldham Athletic this weekend, but we shall be cheering on the uh, Mariners, it says here, regardless. At a more micro level, we learned that individual footballers can still act as powerful role models. We learned this from the formidable figure of former Everton striker, current Everton assistant manager and once prolific red card collector Duncan Ferguson. And yes, it turns out we are playing an Everton FA Cup song for a reason. Seriously, these things really are meticulously excogitated. Yeah. Right? Anyway, we learned that Big Dunk had been alerted to the fact that one of his club's young supporters had been slacking vis-a-vis his homework, and that Big Dunk was unimpressed. Your teacher, old Tom, has told me you've been fucking slacking off a wee bit in your, in your uh, photography, is that right? We can't be having that, mate. You better get your finger out all right and make sure that you get the fucking results. And if you get the results right and you stick in, I'll come and see you, all right? I'll take you for a bit of lunch or I'll come to your house or something, eh? We'll sit down and have a wee chat. Is that all right, mate? So you make sure you stick in, eh? Come on, don't fuck the job up. So we learned that there is still no imaginable threat more terrifying than that of Duncan Ferguson offering to take you to lunch. We also learned, while we're up this way, that once again looking up what happened when hapless burglars who'd failed to do their research broke into Ferguson's home remains, years later, hilarious. Maintaining what appears to be a theme of people being bundled out of buildings amid scenes of argy and indeed bargy. We learned via the travails of British Labour Party leader Sir Keir Starmer that campaigning in post-Brexit Britain has not become noticeably less fraught. 
Sirkir and Entourage were encouraged to depart The Raven, a pub in Bath. I'm not bothering him. That man is not allowed in my pub. Get out of my pub. Go on. Get out of my pub. After Sakir's functionaries wearily wrote the landlord down as an undecided, we learned that portions of Britain's media have learned not one goddamn thing from the last few years, as we learned that the indignant innkeeper would indeed be rewarded for his offery by having his views solicited for broadcast. We could play a clip of this, but we're trying to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. So here, instead, is some soothing music. And we learned the identity of the least self-aware city on Earth. It is the Australian seaside hamlet of Byron Bay. Some context is necessary. Byron Bay has long been seen as essentially a holding pen for Australia's most annoying people. Crystal clutchers, scented candle manufacturers, aromatherapists, among many other stripes of New Age quacks and yahoos. More recently, these dingbats have been joined by a yet more pestilential cohort. Influencers, that weird strata of dopey attention seekers who somehow make a living pouting into telephones. And they, we learned, are to be the subject of a new Netflix reality show called, and you'll see what they've done here, Byron Bays. B-A-E-S. We learned that Byron Bay residents are no less displeased and have got up a petition to prove it, in the preamble of which they declare their refusal to let their town become a punchline. Do we have a clip of a ship having sailed? There it is. And we learned to our abiding sorrow of the passing of Jim Steinman, the legendarily eccentric record producer who turned the motto Go Big or Go Home into a genre unto itself, responsible as he was for such glorious nonsenses as Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell. Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart, and the Sisters of Mercy's This Corrosion. Most tributes to Steinman have focused, reasonably enough, on the cod operatic follies he confected to others, but he plays us out this week under his own name, from his sublimely ridiculous 1981 solo album, Bad for Good. Thank you for your service. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Finally on today's programme, the London Library will celebrate its 180th birthday in the next few weeks and has a whole host of events planned to showcase the stunning space in St James's Square. Well, I'm pleased to say that I'm joined by the director of the London Library, Philip Marshall. Good morning to you, Philip. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, can you tell us a little of the long and august history of the library? 
Yes, of course. The, the library was founded in 1841, so 180 years ago, um, it, next week, actually. And uh, it was founded really to be a place that um, people could get hold of decent reading material. Uh, at the time, the, the, the best place to go would be the, the British Museum for the library there, but you couldn't borrow the books. And what uh, our founders wanted to do was create a place where you could borrow a wonderful collection of books, take them home, be close with them, uh, get as much out of them as you could, uh, and then return them for other people to use. So we have over 180 years um, amassed a tremendous collection of a million books um, that particularly writers find of great use. Um, to borrow. And of course writers are really at the heart of the London Library not only because of course they produce the books but a lot of people sit there actually writing their books. Absolutely it's a real uh, haven for quiet thought um, and uh, we have some wonderful spaces at the library, some ter terrific reading rooms but also some wonderful sort of single desks dotted around in the in the stacks amongst the uh, 19 million, sorry, 1 million books and 19 miles of shelves that we have in the library. Uh, there are, as you say, beautiful spaces to work in. I wonder if you could just give us a little snapshot of, of those rooms. Yes, well, we have a, a, a beautiful um, Victorian reading room, um, which has about uh, 40 seats in it, book lined, sort of um, double room height with a gallery, and that's a, that's a wonderful space. Um, we have smaller rooms, um, some, some uh, have different names, but they're like study style or writer's style, different moods really for um, uh, to suit different moods that writers may be in when they come in. And so most of the rooms you can use your laptop in, but in the large reading room, we actually keep that as a space that's laptop free. So it's even quieter than the other spaces. Now, tell us about the festival. Well, the festival is very much to celebrate our 100th, uh, 180th anniversary. And we wanted to celebrate the fact that the library really has been always a place of inspiration and discovery, a, a place of community and, and refuge even for many people over the years. Um, so we're talking to um, writers who have been members of the library or talking about writers who have been members of the library in the more distant past. We're talking about how people get their inspiration from collections or indeed how they get their inspiration more widely than that um, and, and friendships and uh, uh, communities that uh, spring up around libraries and around literature. Mm. Let's have a look at some of the uh, some of the people who'll be involved. So Salman Rushdie, for instance. Yes, well, Salman Rushdie, a long-standing member of the library, 40 years ago um, published Midnight's Children, of course. Um, so he will be talking about what inspired him to create uh, that masterpiece um, and also what's inspired him since then. And he'll be in discussion with Nikita Lawani about that. And that's, that's really one to look forward to. Mm. Uh, and two wonderful female writers, Sarah Waters and uh, Hallie Rubenhold. Yes, again, both uh, members of the library. Um, and uh, again, that's another one that focuses on the idea of inspiration. Um, so uh, in, in particular, um, <clears throat> uh, Sarah and Hallie have both written um, a great deal using the library collection. Um, and uh, and I think that one will be really interesting to see what drives them. Absolutely. And if people want to, to, to hear a little of the backstory of Sarah and of Hallie and indeed of Monique Roffey, who's also going to be appearing at your festival, they are all subjects of our Meet the Writers podcast, so you can always find them on our archive. Uh, finally, uh, Virginia Woolf has been dead for 80 years, uh, and you're going to mark that. 
Yes, indeed. We've got a very special dramatisation of A Room of One's Own, which uh, we filmed within the library um, using the different spaces at the library. And uh, Nina Sasanya is starring in that. And um, I think because that that um, essay of Virginia Woolf's was really about finding a safe space to write in um, and particularly for, for women to be able to to um, bring their voices to the fore. It's, a, it, it's going to be terrifically exciting. And uh, Virginia Woolf was a, a life member of the library from the age of 22 to her death, so she knew us very well. Mm. Uh, what impact would you say that the library has had on the cultural landscape of Britain? I know that there was a report recently which, which actually broke it down. Yes, indeed. Uh, we did a report last year um, where we uh, analysed our, our membership and what they were producing creatively and actually were able to estimate, and this was all done with a firm of accountants who knew how to, 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 to wrangle the numbers, um, that, that we create £22 million worth of um, economic value to the UK economy per year. Um, for a little old library like us, that's uh, pretty good going. And it's it's basically through the support that we give to uh, our, our writer members um, and how much of that, um, how much of the output that they produce is attributed to the support of the library. Amazing stuff. Uh, finally, how can people access the festival? Um, well, if they go onto the, the website, there's a particular website for this, which is the londonlibrarylitfest.com, uh, and uh, they can find the um, tickets there. It's £5 per event or £25 for a weekend pass over the three days of the bank holiday weekend. Wonderful stuff. Uh, Philip, thank you very much for joining us. That was Philip Marshall, Director of the London Library. That festival takes place uh, from the, the uh, 1st to the 3rd of May. And as he says, just go to the London Library Litfest uh, website and you can book tickets for that. And that's all we have time for today. Uh, this show was produced by Rhys James and our studio engineer was Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Music.